I wonder how many of you are worrywarts. Worrywarts, people who you know just tend to worry a lot. I, I looked up in the dictionary because I knew that has to be an actual technical term because I've heard it all my life. So-and-so is a worrywart. So-and-so is a worrywart. Well, the dictionary defines a worrywart as a person who is inclined to worry unduly. And I, I believe, really, you know, uh, all of us have a tendency towards worry. For it, it, but some people just obsess with it. You may be one of those or you may know some of those. But the fact is, you know, that's what we're going to be looking at today is as Jesus addresses the matter of worrying. I, I remember a story, and I bet you've heard it too, but anyway, this, this company of soldiers were about to do their first parachute jump. And so, you know, the instructor had been giving them instructions and teaching them everything about jumping out of an airplane and, and, and landing with a parachute. And so he was on the plane with them as they were uh, making that big jump that day, and the plane was gaining an altitude. He's going over the basic instructions with them, you know, uh, jump out of the plane, <laughs> one, <laughs> and then you count to 10, and then simply just pull the ripcord, and your chute will come out, and you'll have a nice, delightful, easy float down to the ground. And so time came, you know, and they were getting ready to jump, and, and one soldier who was known for his pessimism and his tendency to be a worrywart, you know, he asked a reasonable question, you know, with, uh, when the uh, sergeant had given all those instructions. He said, well, what, what if it doesn't work? Okay, and the sergeant was trying to be very, the instructor was trying to be very comforting, you know, and trying to, you know, uh, give some instructions there. And he said, well, no, no problem, soldier. He says, if your rip cord doesn't work, you've got an emergency cord on the opposite shoulder. And just pull that and says, you'll be fine. And, and again, I, the worry wart, he said, yeah, yeah, but then, you know, what if I sprain my ankle at the ground and landed on the ground? And the sergeant, the instructor says, well, soldier, don't, don't worry about it. We've got a very uh, highly equipped ambulance waiting at the bottom. They, they, uh, medics, everybody take care. Anything that happens, don't you worry about it. So out they went, one after another, after another. And the sky began to fill with all these parachutes as all the soldiers were jumping out and, and everything. And then time came for the worry wart <laughs> to jump out. And sure enough, as soon as he jumped out, he counted the 10, pulled his ripcord, didn't work. He's dropping like a rock. So, you know, the sergeant could see his dilemma. So he yelled out, said, soldier, pull your, pull, pull your emergency cord. And so he reached over and yanked it hard and the string broke. And so he's, he's just barreling down towards the earth. And, and, and as he's passing a group of his fellow soldiers who are floating along easily, you know, they heard him muttering. Yeah, and I bet that ambulance is not going to be down there either. <laughs> so, you know. That's just a tendency of those that worry. But, you know, there may be worry warts in your life. You may be a worry wart. Uh, actually, the truth be known, all of us have a tendency to worry. And, you know, things just don't go our way from time to time. But, you know, the Lord speaks very pointedly in the lesson today, in the text today, about the sin of worry. And so as you look in chapter 12, and we'll be beginning, as I said, in, ver in uh, verse 22, uh, first thing I want us to look at is the fact that worry distorts our kingdom perspective. Worry distorts our kingdom perspective. Now, just in a quick recap, in an earlier text it, here in chapter 12, you know that Jesus and his disciples were out ministering. They're surrounded by a throng of people made up of different uh, people, of different causes. They're the Jewish leaders who are taunting him. 
and trying to discredit him and making false accusations towards him. You know, you got those. You got lots of people who are coming to him who have great needs, physical healing, uh, spiritual healing, um, demon possession. And so, you know, those are in the crowd. They're the curiosity seekers who are just there to see if they can see another miracle. They want to hear another one of these powerful messages by this radical rabbi. And even in our last lesson, we saw there in chapter 12 and verse 13 and all talking about this, this foolish guy that had the audacity to interrupt Jesus's teaching and say, listen, I, I need you to arbitrate on a estate problem between me and my brother. I want you to tell my brother he has to give me my share of the estate. Of course, Jesus refused to stoop to being manipulated by this man. He wanted him to be an arbitrator. But Jesus did seize upon the moment to teach a powerful lesson about the foolishness and eternal consequences of greed. You remember the parable Jesus taught of the man who had, who was a farmer that had great bountiful crops and, and he was bringing in all these crops, crops and didn't know what to do. And he says, well, I'll tear down my old ones and build new ones. Never gave any credit to God. He was saying to himself, oh, self, you can just sit back and, and eat, drink and be merry. Never, ever giving God credit, always pointing to himself. And then God interrupted his little party and said, you fool. This day, your soul will be required of you. Now, who's going to enjoy all the accumulations? And so Jesus is building on that, that message of the foolishness and the eternal consequences of greed. And so now we see the Lord is building on that parable of the wealthy fool. And so in verse 22, you see that he, it's kind of connected. And he said to his disciples, now Jesus has got a throng of people around him. He's speaking primarily to his disciples because he realizes his, his days in, on this earth, ministering to and instructing his disciples and preparing them to launch the church and the kingdom of God. He knows his time is limited. So he's trying to seize at every opportunity to teach valuable lessons to his disciples. And in verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore, and, you know, we always say when you see therefore, you should ask right away, what is it there for? Right, Wendy? Okay. I could tell Wendy was mouthing it. So, yeah. And so the Lord is, is pointing back to what he's just taught and he's forcing his disciples and any other serious minded person in the congregation or the crowd that day to, to, to decide. Everybody has to make this decision. Number one, they would decide that they will foolishly live a life plagued by worry, obsessed about temporal needs. That's the one option. And, or they will opt to live wisely, choosing to store up eternal heavenly treasures versus being obsessed about worrying about gaining all these physical things. So the Lord is challenging his disciples and anybody else that would hear him seriously. He challenges them to look beyond their basic physical needs. Sometimes that's hard to do. I know we live in a, a very blessed country, you know, uh, even with the effects of COVID, we still have plenty. You know, we don't know what it's like to really scrape for daily food and, and sustenance. And so we're so blessed. But, you know, the Lord is helping his disciples to see. He says, I say to you, then verse 22, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, 
what you will put on it. Sometimes people think the body is here just to adorn and fill up and, you know, eat, drink and be merry. You know, Paul reminded us in Ephesians or first Corinthians, rather, first Corinthians, chapter six, verse 19. He says, what? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which is given to you by God. And you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and with your spirit. Because they are, you belong to God. He created you. He redeemed you. Your body is not just to fill up with food and drink and adorn with clothes. There's much more to that. And so as we follow the Lord's teaching here in chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, you see that the Lord calls upon us to live a life, a, a life that is worry free. He said, wait a minute. I mean, problems, there are issues, there are concerns. That's the word, concerns. The, God, the, the Bible, God never forbids us to be concerned. We should exhibit concern about problems and things that come along. But to be obsessed with and constantly worrying over that reveals that we've missed the mark. We, it, it, it is hindering our perspective of the kingdom of God and who God is and what he's doing. And so the Lord is calling upon us as he was calling upon his disciples to, to live a life that is worry-free and faith-filled. And he's reminding us that God is faithful to provide for all of his creation. God is God. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He creates everything, everything that you see and things you don't see. God has created the psalmist in Psalm 104, verse 27, in that wonderful hymn of praise, if you will, he, he's offering praise. He's declaring that all the creatures, big and small, he says, these all wait for you, O God, that you may give them their food in due season. Think about it. Every living creature out there, with the exception of man, created in the image of God, every other creature out there is looking to and dependent upon not just on certain days, but every day, not just at certain times of the day, but all the day. They're all dependent upon God to sustain them. Even the smallest of the creatures, the most insignificant of the creatures. Look what, well, let's go back to verse 23. The Lord said, the Lord said life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Amen. But he says, consider the ravens. You know, we've already looked at the sparrows who are cheap. You could buy a dozen for a dime. I'm just, you know, maybe not that cheap. But anyway, you could buy sparrows for almost nothing. And yet God sees every sparrow, the Lord says. There's not one that falls at the Lord. So the creator loves his creation. Jesus said in verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap. That's true. Not no, no other birds that I know of tend to farm, <laughs> you know, and, and raise their crop to eat. He says they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. And God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a statue? It's interesting, you know, that Jesus would use the ravens as an illustration. Because in the Jewish culture, the ravens were considered to be biblically now, uh, biblically, they were considered to be detestable birds, unclean 
birds. So you're down at the bottom of the rankings of birds. You know, he said, consider even those nasty old ravens. I don't know if y'all have any ravens around your house. I got plenty of blackbirds. I, I don't know the difference. But anyway, they're pests. But he says, even those, you know, God takes care of them. And he says, infinitely more of value are those who are created in God's images. In God's image, you are of infinitely more value in the eyes of God than, than these birds and other creatures. Mankind is the crown of God's creation. God yearned for that point in the creation story where he would, he would create man and create woman in the image of God and breathe into them eternal souls and give them the ability to fellowship and relate to God. How much more concerned and how much more uh, attentive is God going to be for us than even those basic creatures? Jesus is teaching that worrying over anything is useless and futile. Worrying over anything is absolutely useless and futile. He does not want us to spend our valuable time twiddling our thumbs, worrying about things that we cannot control, but we know that he will always provide for us. And when we know that our sovereign God already knows the needs that we have, why are we worrying about? Why are we going to worry about the things that God already knows that we need? As if we had to get him, convince him by being so you know, distraught, emotionally distraught, that somehow God would take notice. Now that doesn't mean that we are not responsible. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned you know we should be concerned about our health you know we should be concerned about you know our diet we should be concerned about you know our amount of exercise and, and yeah you want to make sure that you're properly clothed when you go out you know and, and according to the weather and and so these things and self-discipline and healthy practices those are fine but just don't worry about it. don't become obsessed we're trying to, to, to change your circumstances by sitting and worrying and fretting and wringing your hands because that distorts your perspective of the kingdom of God. You are, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you are a child of the Most High God. And to worry over things uh, that we need from day to day is an insult to him. But worry also, in addition to disturbing or distorting our kingdom perspective, Worrying exposes deficiency and deficiencies in our faith. To be consumed with worrying and always resulting to worrying says something's wrong in the faith department. A lack of faith dishonors God. Did you hear that? A lack of faith dishonors God. So worrying is dishonoring to our God. And, and, and so a lack of faith is, is, is dishonoring to God, but it also tends to promote worrying. Let's look at verse 27 there together. Let's back up to verse 26. If you then are not able to do the, the least, why are you anxious for the rest? In other words, he said in verse 25, you know, who, who can add an hour to your lifespan? Who can add... Uh, an inch to your growth. You you know you worry all you want, but you're not going to live a second longer. It's not going to enhance your life one bit. And so now you know as he as he's telling his disciples here, he says, consider the look at verse 27. Consider the lilies. I love looking at wildflowers and particularly 
you know, the real pretty ones, you know, in the spring when they're coming out. My mom, one of her favorite flowers was a wildflower. It was a, it was a, a lily that grew down by the streams. It was a white lily. And it had beautiful markings right in the inside of the, each petal. And she just loved those. And I knew she loved them. So I would make a point around Mother's Day if they were out. Yeah, you know, I'd go pick all I could get in my hand and run back and get a jelly jar or some kind of mason jar and fill it up water and stick those in there, you know. And, and she just... She loved them. And they were. It's like an artist took a brush and just stroked inside of each one of those petals and, and made them distinct and, and just threw it out. And yet they were wild. They're out there, you know, not raised by a florist or somebody that was uh, trained in horticulture or something. And, and so Jesus is saying here in verse 27, look at these beautiful lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't create their beauty. And yet I say to you, even Solomon. Solomon, of course, was the wisest man to live. Of course, second to Christ, who was all wise. Solomon was the richest king of his time. He said, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And Solomon being wealthy, filthy rich, I guess you would say, and having a wardrobe that was just dazzle probably anybody. You know, he could just take out any kind of robe. He probably had some of those beautiful royal robes to wear. And Jesus says, listen, even Solomon in all of his extensive wardrobe had nothing that would match the intricate beauty and delicacy of these wild lilies, if you will. And in verse 28, he says, if then God so clothes the grass, you notice how he brings those beautiful lilies down to just what they are. Basically, they're grass. They're like grass. He says, if God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, people would go out. You know, they had those brick ovens that they would, uh, clay ovens that they would cook their bread and things like that in. And they would go out and they'd just pick up kindling, you know, dried weeds or dried brush or whatever. And, and it would burn fast. It would burn hot. And they would just, and a lot of times those dead lilies, they'd just scoop them up. And so he says, a beautiful one moment and a moment and the next they're thrown into the fire. So you see, he says, why are you going to worry? Why are you going to worry? You know, if God was to clothe these beautiful lilies and they, they get thrown into a fire, he says, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? O you of little faith. I like Mr. Practicality, James, because he's always got some very practical pointed things to tell us. And so I want to take you back. You can hold your place there. And if you got your Bibles where you turn back to James chapter one. James has a few words to share with us here. He says in verse six, James chapter one, verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all ways. Listen, God doesn't take kindly to people who offer weak and, and, and ineffective faith uh, to, to him that, that leads them to worry. And weak faith robs us of the blessings of God. You know, when, when Jesus is saying to his disciples and the listeners there, you know, he says, listen, if God takes care of these beautiful lilies and, and so clothes them, how much more do you think he's going to take care of you and your need for clothing and, and, and things like that? He says, oh, you of little faith. 
It's not the first time that Jesus used that expression and probably uh, would be many times afterwards. But we know there are occasions in the scriptures where Jesus would use that expression. It's a gentle rebuke of Jesus, you know, to, to, to challenge his disciples to exercise stronger faith. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus' disciples, this is, uh, they, were, they were doing their little inventory for their group. And they said, yikes, we might not, I'm paraphrasing, we might not have enough bread to feed us. <laughs> you know, we might get hungry. And this was right on the heels of Jesus miraculously fe feeding thousands of men and women and children from a little boy's lunch made up of, of a few loaves of bread and, and a couple of fish. And they, and they had leftovers. And right on the heels of that, they noticed that they forgot to, you know, pack enough bread. They said, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, did you not learn anything? Did you not see anything that would have strengthened your faith to trust me? No, no matter what the inventory is. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, you may remember when Peter was, the, the disciples were out in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus came walking out to him and, and Peter asked the Lord, says, you know, or told, told the Lord, call me out there. Let me, let me walk out. I want to walk on the water like you, Lord. And Peter did. He stepped out of the boat and he's walking on top of the waves. Don't try this at home. But anyway, you know how the story goes. The, the wind was blowing, the waves were crashing and was just kind of intimidated. Peter took his eyes off of the Lord and began to sink. And at that moment, he cried out, you know, Master, save me. I would have done the same thing, y'all, okay? Okay, but that save me. And, and as Jesus is gently lifting Peter back up to safety, guess what he said? Oh, ye of little faith. Peter, grow your faith, son. Get your faith a little stronger. And so as we think about you know, the disciples there, Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, when the disciples were out on the on the sea and, and, the, and where Jesus was in the boat with them and the storm came up, you know, Jesus was asleep, taking them a nap back in the bow of the boat, snoozing, and the waves are crashing over. They're fighting the storm. They can't get any headway. They're so afraid. These are seasoned fishermen. They're thinking they might go down at any minute, you know, and they quick wake up Jesus, disturb him in the middle of, a, of his nap. And, and, you know, and, and he first thing he says, you know, after he gets up, of course, quietens the storm down, says, stop that. Wind stops, waves stop. Then he turned to his disciples and said, oh, ye of little faith. You know, sometimes I believe that the Lord will whisper that into my soul and into your soul. When we're facing big problems and, and you know, uncertainties and crises, and there's that tendency stirring up in us, you know, stirring up to... I want to worry. I want to take control of this. I want to try to, you know, somehow worry it out of out of existence or whatever. I believe that if we'll listen carefully deep in our soul, we'll hear the Lord saying, oh, Charlie, your little faith. Strengthen your faith. Grow your faith. Trust me. So worrying exposes deficiencies in our faith, like our lack of faith and in our insufficient faith hinders our reliance upon our Heavenly Father. It does. When we have insufficient or weak faith, it hinders our reliance upon the Father, our Heavenly Father. Let's look at verse 29. Verse 29. And, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Or in other words, in the uh, ESV, it's do not be worried. 
For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these things shall be added to you. You know, it's the unregenerate world around us. The people of, of the unregenerate world. The people that don't know God. That don't know Christ. That don't have a relationship with the Lord. You would expect them to be uh, un, uh, unnecessarily obsessed about getting things and having things. And, and they're going to be the ones that would be worrying over whether or not they're going to make it. And, you know, these are the people that don't know God and they're headed towards judgment. But they, they seem to have no care. They just kind of go along like the, the foolish man, the farmer we saw in the parable, eat, drink, and be merry. In sharp contrast, God's people believe that their heavenly father takes pleasure in meeting our needs. That's the difference between us and the world's crowd. First of all, they don't know God. They have no room for God in their lives. Everything they, they're self-made men and women. They, they look, they'll, they'll say, look what I've done. Look what I, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps, by my bootstraps. And I've made something to myself. And look at all of our, I've accumulated. And, and then they worry about what they don't have. Not so with God's people. In, in stark contrast, God's people believe their heavenly father takes pleasure in meeting their needs. The scriptures tell us God's given us in his word. The apostle Paul in Philippians 4.19 said, our God shall supply all your needs. You'll notice he didn't say some of your needs or the most convenient needs. God, our God will supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. Uh, in glory in Christ Jesus. And so we have that wonderful promise from the Lord. Back in Psalm verse 37, in Psalm verse 30, uh, uh, chapter 37. Let me just take you back there. I, I, I read this and it's, it's, it's a Psalm of David. And you know the relationship that David had with, with God, uh, Jehovah. And, and, and he's talking about this in verse one of Psalm 37. David says, do not fret because of evildoers. Nor be, nor be envious of the work of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. David's writing to God's people. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord and trust also in him. And he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. You see what David's saying to those who know Jehovah God, the true and living God? He says, just trust him, wait on him, rest in him. The antithesis of, of, of being caught up in worry. Fully trusting in the Lord. You know, we sing that hymn sometimes. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Whereas we move forward in this passage, we've looked at how worrying distorts our kingdom perspective. And we've seen how worrying exposes deficiencies in our faith. And finally, I'd like for you to consider how worrying is useless and unnecessary in the life of a believer. Useless and unnecessary. I don't know about you, 
I got too many other things to deal with than to get concerned about things that are useless and unnecessary. You know, my schedule's too full as it is. And, G and Jesus is telling us, don't spend your time and your energy worrying because number one, it's useless and it's absolutely unnecessary. You know, Matthew's gospel and in the uh, king of uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm getting there. We find these words that are echoing what we see here in, in Matthew's gospel, in chapter uh, 6, Matthew 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in the heaven, in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there's where your heart will be also. Jesus is challenging as he's preaching about, teaching about the kingdom of God. He's, he's dealing with people's tendency to become obsessed with treasures of the world, things, material things, possessions. And he said, don't, don't spend your time, your energy, wasting on these things that are passing away. 1 John 2.17 all of them, but be more concerned about investing in eternal treasures. And Jesus is reminding, as we go back to Luke chapter 12, Luke, uh, Jesus is reminding his disciples of their father's love and his generation, generosity. God loves you. He loves me. And God is not, you know, stingy. He's, he's generous towards us. The Lord lovingly informs them that they belong to the good shepherd of the flock of God. And we are children of God. Look at verse 32 there with me. He says, do not fear little flock. You'll notice how Jesus uses these wonderful terms of endearment. He's reminded them of, you know, he's already told them in John chapter 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And I love my sheep and I'll lay down my life for my sheep. So he's saying, don't, don't be afraid. You belong to me. You're, I'm, I'm your shepherd. Like David would say in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And that's true for us. And he's reminding us that we are his flock. But even beyond that, in that same verse, he says, for it is your father's. You notice he's inserting that paternal relationship that we have with God. He's not just a deity that's distant and separated from us, but he is our spiritual heavenly father. And what father doesn't love their children and is willing to give them whatever they need? And Jesus says, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom Think about that. Our father is not a miserly, you know, stingy, tight-fisted deity who's sitting up there in heaven meeting out small portions like you'd be a sparrow, you know? Oh, no. Jesus says it gives him God good pleasure. Our father gains great pleasure. And other translations of that verse or that phrase says he does it with much delight. He gladly thrills him, our Father, when he provides 
for us. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 17 that we are heirs of God. We are joint fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Folks, if we are co-owners with the kingdom of God through our adoption into his family by Jesus Christ, how are we going to worry about temporal small things on this earth, this, this very brief time that we're on the face of the earth in this world? How are we going to become so obsessed that we would give up hope because we're worried? Look at verse 33. And this is interesting because Jesus is using the words that he used with the rich man that came to Jesus who was wanting to know how he could have eternal life in, uh, in, in Luke 18, verse 22. And, and Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 19, 21, when the rich man came and, and, and Jesus says, where well, you got to keep the commandments? And he says, which ones? And Jesus just rattled off a bunch of them. He says, got it, got it, got it, done it. Is there anything else? I mean, I just want to make sure I got, I got the clearance to heaven. And Jesus said, oh, you know what? He knew the man's heart. There is just one more thing. <laughs> just sell all you got. Everything. Lock, stock, and barrel. And, and no, don't put it in the bank. Don't get that idea. Don't cash it in for CDs. Or no, 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 no. Go distribute it to the poor. And he nailed that. Nailed it. Because that's the thing he couldn't do. He loved his stuff, his things. How many people are holding on to things that, that are holding them down and keeping them from rising up to the glories of the Lord and being all that they can be in Christ by being willing to sacrifice, no matter what, to follow the Lord and be obedient to him. Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me daily, not just at Christmas and Easter, but every day of his life. And so Jesus, as he's sharing this here in, in Luke 12, in verse 33, he says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, Jesus is saying basically to his disciples and those who are interested in that down, thing, the same thing he told that rich man that came who was very wealthy and very materially. He says, if you're overly attached to your possessions, then you'll have trouble letting go of all that for the Lord, to serve the Lord. Why would we hold on to stuff and worry about it? What we're going to eat, what we're going to wear when we know that we're children of the living God. Instead of investing in vaults, instead of investing in safety deposit boxes, let's take his instruction there and pray for eternal change purses. I'm one of those guys that still walks around with change purse. I hate loose change running around in my pockets, you know. And, and because it gives me away when I'm trying to sneak up on church members. Oh, gene, gene, gene. Oh, here comes the preacher. Quick. No, I'm just kidding. I just don't like it. 
And two, I keep my keys in there too. So sometimes when somebody, the clerk says, that'll be uh, $8 and one cent. I say, oh, no problem. I got that tonight. And I'm trying to get it because the keys are in the way. So oh, where were I? So Jesus, in essence, is saying, you know, let the Lord help you to, to design an eternal change purse in which you can store up heavenly treasures that we eagerly deposit into the first celestial heavenly bank so that we're not so concerned about what we're accumulating in the banks here on the earth or in our safety deposit box. But the real treasure is the treasures that you that you place in the care of God. How much eternal interest are you accruing in your account as a result of deposits of charity given and ministries performed in your church or missions participated in the local community or across the state or the nation or the world or times that you intentionally shared the gospel with a lost person or the moments in, uh, that you spent pouring over and studying the word of God. How much eternal interest are you earning? Never mind what First Citizens Bank or wherever you bank says on their account sheet. No, that doesn't matter. How much interest for your treasures in heaven are you earning as a result of unselfish, faithfully following the Lord? Instead of worrying or obsessing about what you will have or eat or wear, why don't you prayerfully ask the Lord to show you the balance on your heavenly treasure account that will last you forever. You can't take it with you. Earthly things, worldly things, material things. You can't. Just like God reminded the foolish farmer. You fool. You're cashing in your life tonight, boy. This is it. Your ride's over. It's going to be hot from here on. Now, who's going to enjoy all this that you worried about and fretted over and struggled to protect? Because you won't. In contrast, in great contrast, Jesus is saying, in essence, don't get obsessed about these treasures of the earth, and things of the world. Enjoy the reality and the wonderful assurance that the treasures that you've invested in by following Christ and serving him and actively engaging in the kingdom of God. Oh, listen, you might be absolutely dumbfounded when you get to heaven and the Lord says, oh, by the way, you know, when you're down there working along for the kingdom and serving me and witnessing and, and, and engaged in all of that, you had no idea that the cash register up here in my celestial bank was going, ching, 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 ching. And, and by the way, after those years of service, here's your treasure. And I don't think it's going to be monetary. It's not, it's not going to be anything trivial like that. No. It'll be the praises that you will be able to offer to God, thanking Him and praising Him for who He is and for your salvation and for your eternal life. The treasures of being able to offer to him all of that and just say for your glory and to your praise. Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Are you worrying? Are you spending time over that which is useless? 
and unnecessary when you can be dedicating yourself in prayer and Bible study and serving the Lord and pleasing Him and accumulating the treasure that will last you for eternity. That's a long time, folks. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word speaks and reiterates and reaffirms these divine, wonderful kingdom principles that are not there just to impress us, Lord, but to engage us. First and foremost, Lord, I pray that every person that you have in your divine foreknowledge chosen to be a part of your eternal family, your children, Lord, for those you've chosen who have yet to take that step of faith to repent of their sins and turn to Christ, believing that it was you, Lord Jesus, that died for their sins on the cross 2,000 years ago. And yes, you were buried in a grave and, and there three days, but on the third day you rose out of that grave. And, and because of the victory of your resurrection, they too can have victory over death and sin and have eternal life if they put their trust, their faith in you. Lord, I pray if anyone is, is sensing you, convicting of their hearts to that decision. Lord, would you let me be an instrument to help them to follow through with that. Let this church be an instrument to help people come to that point. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the confidence we have that you, that you love us and you will take care of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Mark, if you come and close the services, God leads you, please.